0: Hey there, folks, and welcome to another episode of West Obsessed, where the editors and writers of High Country News discuss the region's most important stories. I'm Brian Calvert, the managing editor of High Country News, and I'm here today with our senior editor, Jonathan Thompson. Hi, Jonathan. Hey, Brian. And our online editor, Tay Wiles. Hey there. Today we're going to talk about a very interesting story, which is a movement of so-called constitutional sheriffs, or what we sometimes refer to as sagebrush sheriffs, These are law enforcement officials who believe that the federal government has no jurisdiction in their counties and that sheriffs are the highest law in the land. Uh, That's according to their own interpretation of the Constitution. Uh, We call them sagebrush sheriffs because they are critical, almost invisible, because they are a critical, almost invisible part of a broader movement, sometimes called the Sagebrush Rebellion. Uh, That's a movement that wants to take control of public lands across the West. Uh, This idea was at the root of the occupation of the Mollier National Wildlife Refuge in Oregon, uh, and it's got supporters across the region, uh, generally in counties that have suffered economic decline in one way or another. So before we really get into this, I want to play some tape. Um, This is from an interview on YouTube where a man named Richard Mack, who is the founder of the Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers Association, explains his point of view. Uh,
1: He reports directly to we the people and so he is sovereign in that regard because he reports directly to the other sovereigns and that's why the sheriff is the ultimate authority he's not a bureaucrat from washington dc uh... the president of the united states cannot tell your sheriff what to do and so certainly none of the other auxiliary departments underneath the president can tell the sheriff what to do and that includes the irs the epa osha fbi DEA, any of those agencies cannot tell the sheriff what to do but when they're in his sovereign jurisdiction he can tell them what to do. The question is will he? It's really alarming how many uh, peace officers, policemen, law enforcement officers, sheriffs, chiefs of police who have actually taken an oath of office to uphold and defend uh, protect and preserve the United States Constitution And then when you present them with that thought or idea that that's exactly what they should be doing, they claim that it isn't their job to uphold and defend the Constitution, that which they've already sworn an oath to do. And and so that's what really I find very disturbing. But it's, I think it's the evolution that has taken place in our country today. And also it's it's a result or a consequence or a branch of what's wrong with America. W- America is off track. We have replaced our constitution, which was the bulwark of our freedom in this country, with uh, political agendas, political selfishness, and ultimately, uh, political correctness has replaced our constitution. And so it is, a, is it any wonder that we're so far off track? And w- my message is law enforcement owns part of that problem and we need to correct it.
0: So, Jonathan, you've been researching these Sagebrush Sheriffs for a long time. Who is Richard Mack, and what is he saying here?
2: Well, Richard Mack is the, as you said, he's the founder of the Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers Association. But before that, he was the sheriff, or one of them, who took on the federal government back in, uh, I believe it was 1994, over the Brady Bill, a gun control um, law, and it was over one specific provision of the Brady Bill, which was that sheriffs would have to implement the background checks um, for for the guns under this law um, until the government, until the feds came up with some better system. And Sheriff Mack didn't like that. He didn't like the law at all because he doesn't like gun control. But he didn't like that one provision especially, and he took it to court. It went to the Supreme Court and. Um, Mac and his co-sheriffs that were also um, suing one. and basically the the decision was that the federal government cannot force um, cannot force the sheriffs or state officers of any sort to enforce federal regulations. Right. So, so before that, the
0: constitutional sheriffs didn't really exist as an organization. There were just sheriffs and other people who were resistant to to federal regulations. And so in in this case, the Supreme Court decision really kind of emboldened Richard Mack and the constitutional sheriffs. So kind of what happened from there?
2: Yeah, right. So I mean Richard Mack, he became this hero uh to the Tea Party or to the to to the patriot movement at the time. This was in the nineties. Um and but after a while he kind of faded away. But then Obama was elected. And when that happened, Richard Mack was very upset about Obama's election, and he wrote a book called Um The County Sheriff, America's Last Hope. And basically, it laid out his philosophy, which is that sheriffs are the ultimate law enforcement authority. That basically, as he said in the clip, that that they, because they are elected officials, that they have more power than anybody in their own county, including the president of the United States, <laughs> um, and all federal uh, organizations, right. IRS etc.
0: Right. He says it right there on the clip. He says, you know, we don't have to listen to the president or Mm -hmm. any of his administration. Um, Yeah.
2: (laughs) and It's it's a fascinating philosophy. And, and, you know, I should point out that there's all this talk that we're saying about constitutional sheriffs. The the office of sheriff is not in the Constitution and Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the U.S. Constitution. it's, It's a state office. That's not really what he's talking about. It's more that he believes that it's the sheriff's duty, and you know they're the they're the people who have to uphold the Constitution and defend it against its enemies, which, um, in this case, is the federal government, in his mind.
0: Okay, right, yeah, and there's like a little bit of historical perspective to have here too, because this whole idea of the sheriff holding power actually comes from the Civil War, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, in in some ways, it comes. It goes way back to, to pre-revolutionary war when the first sheriffs were created. The sheriffs, the office of sheriff was created in the colonies. Um, and that came from Anglo-Saxon times, like ninth century England or something like that. But the, um, the sheriff at the time was given the power of posse comitatus, which is the power to raise a posse of citizens. You know, mm-hmm. we've seen it in the Westerns where they go out and they deputize a bunch of, People and they go out after the criminals. Um, after the Civil War, the the federal government, the the Union, sent soldiers down to the South, um, basically to enforce uh, to enforce the rights of of to uphold the rights of freed slaves. And what they did is they they made them. They deputized them in a way. The federal government did. And a lot of southern congressmen were very upset about that, naturally. And they created an act. They, they were able to push an act through Congress called the Posse Comitatus Act, which said that the U.S. military could never be used to enforce laws, local laws, in any way. And um, that that is another act that was then later used as justification for saying that thing, people like IRS agents or BLM agents are illegitimate, You know, kind of extending that, that idea that you can't use the military to enforce laws to you can't use federal officials at all to enforce laws. And so that's been a big part of this whole ideology as well.
0: Uh, so you could basically, you could write laws, but you can't enforce them. I guess if you're the federal
2: government. Yeah, I mean that's what it comes down to. You can't enforce them unless I mean, yeah, that's that's basically what it, if if you follow this this philosophy through to its sort of logical end, you can't the federal government can make laws, but it can't enforce them. And so the only way that they can actually hold is if the sheriffs essentially agree with the laws.
3: Mm-hmm. It was interesting hearing Jonathan talk about this because when I did reporting in Josephine County in, in Southern Oregon for a story in this package, there's a posse there. There's, I mean, but the the public safety budgets had been cut so much in recent years that uh, the sheriff actually still did depend on what he called a posse that, of people that he de- of citizens in the area that he would deputize to help with certain things. Um, I mean, he's still he still counted on his core group of five or so actual sheriff's deputies. But um, but I just thought that was interesting when I, when I was there. I was like, oh, OK, this this thing that has roots way back uh, in the 18th century, 19th century um, is, is still alive.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting because in Colorado, actually, posses are they're kind of an official institution. There's mm-hmm. the, something called the Colorado Mounted Rangers, I think. Mm-hmm. And they are essentially a posse. Mm-hmm. They are um, made up of civilians who are armed, and they, you know, they create, they, they do crowd control at mm-hmm. like county fairs and stuff like right. that. But it's a posse, and actually in Colorado as well, um, when a bunch of sheriffs, almost all the county sheriffs in Colorado, sued the state when the state passed a few little gun laws about the, how big your bullet clip can be. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when was that? They, That was uh, 2013 or 2014, and it was basically 54, I think, of 64 sheriffs in Colorado sued the state, and their their rationale was that the sheriff has the right to raise a posse, and the posse, in order to be effective, needs to be well-armed, and therefore, you can't pass gun laws that would hinder that posse-raising ability. It's kind of a strange argument, but- (laughs) That, that's kind of what they did. Huh.
0: So essentially what you have is two varying degrees. You do have sheriffs out there and people who support sheriffs who have um, these sort of strong views on constitutionality and what the sheriff has the power to do and what the federal government doesn't have the power to do. And so this kind of plays out on the ground more often than you would think when it comes to these public land conflicts and Jonathan, one of them that we've uh, written about at High Country News is this rebellious ATV ride in Recapture Canyon in southern Utah. You went there and, and saw how that played out between the BLM and the, the local sheriff. So could you just sort of describe what that was like, that, that ATV ride, and how the sheriff played into that dynamic?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, so the so the whole idea here was to ride these ATVs down this canyon where, the, where ATVs were not allowed by the BLM. Um, and to do it as a sort of protest. There, there's there's some disagreements still about whether they they actually rode in a place that was illegal or not, but they were convicted, so we can say that they did. And the BLM in advance had kind of said, you know what, we're not gonna we're not gonna go down there with or with our guns and stuff and arrest you. Um, we're gonna keep a low profile if we're down there at all. The sheriff, meanwhile, kind of said, well. I'm not going to arrest anybody either. I'm going to go down there and keep the peace was, that was his words. And essentially the way the protesters at least interpreted that and the way I kind of interpreted it too, was that he was there to kind of protect the protesters, the ATV riding protesters against potential counter protesters and, 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 from the BLM as well, if they did decide to show up with guns and that sort of thing. And in fact, what happened was, you know, there's like 30 deputies down in this canyon, which is a lot, you know, in this empty place. Yeah. They were armed everything. The, the protesters came down. They came to the line where the closure was, and they just sort of stood by and waved as, as the protesters went by. Um, certainly didn't do anything, didn't didn't help gather any evidence for the BLM to prosecute. And um, a lot of the signs that the, the protesters were carrying actually said, I support Commissioner Lyman, who was the leader of the, the protest, and I support Sheriff Eldridge, who was the local sheriff, which I, I thought was pretty interesting to see somebody flagrantly breaking the law, carrying a sign that says they support their sheriff.
3: It's interesting how this relates to the Clive and Bundy standoff in 2014, because a lot of people had said that the reason why the BLM ended up doing what they did and impounding the cattle at a time that some people said may have not been the right time was because the sheriff had first said that he would support the BLM in the action and then pulled out. It just seems to show that the, the role of the sheriff and what they do in these situations is pretty darn important. Do, do you did you ever get any sense of if that was exactly how it went down at the at the Bundy standoff or not?
2: Yeah, I think that's my understanding. Uh, just the way you said it is that the sheriff originally was kind of working with the BLM, but then he became um, he, he they had some kind of mis disagreement, I guess, mm-hmm. and the sheriff kind of pulled out and said, "Forget it, you guys are on your own," and that really showed um the reaction from the bundy clan i think really showed how powerful the sheriff can be and how important the sheriff is in these sorts of situations if the B- i think if the sheriff would have been still working with the blm and the sheriff would have gone in and said hey guys you know we're going to round up your cattle it might have turned out a lot differently
1: mm-hmm. well
0: let's carry that forward because that actually became a really interesting Longer story, because from the Bundy standoff in 2014, some of the emboldened Bundys and their supporters did show up in Utah at their Recapture Canyon ride. Um, And, you know, Jonathan has written this really (laughs) lovely kind of scene where you see this sheriff on horseback with a, you know, what apparently wearing a bulletproof vest and a cowboy hat and he's just sitting there sort of astride his horse as these ATV riders like blow past and like kick up dust into this sort of, um, protest ride, which I I thought was really interesting. And then after that, the, the Bundys, um, and their supporters again, emboldened by this sort of impunity took over the wildlife refuge, um, much to their probably regret at this point. But there was also a sheriff involved in that controversy who's on the other side of the debate and can you know i think stand in for something that's really interesting which is the sort of grassroots organizational power that sheriffs have because they're mandated by their constituents tay you followed this really closely what who who was the sheriff there in harney county oregon where the um standoff took place and how did he play into that conflict
3: Yeah, the sheriff there is Sheriff Dave Ward, and he was instrumental in the negotiations. But right before the the occupation, there was this march through Burns, Oregon, to support Hammonds, who are the ranchers who were sort of like the original impetus for the occupation, who were in a longstanding dispute with the BLM, and people didn't like how the sheriff had dealt with that situation. And that, um, Jonathan, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it didn't. It seemed that he wasn't really taking sides on that dispute and so people were upset about people who were supporting the Hammonds were upset about that then when the occupation started he he didn't support it at all I mean he wasn't he he was not an occupation supporter and there are sheriffs in the west who were supporting Ammon Bundy at the occupation but he went to to the refuge and asked asked them to leave and and you know Tried to negotiate, said, can we provide an escort for you out? You know, uh, this is really, really tearing our community apart. And you could see as the weeks went on of the occupation, there were these YouTube videos that would go up online of Dave Ward. And he he was just really torn up about it because there were all there were all these outside militia people who were coming to his town uh, to support the occupiers and just stirring up so much discontent and confusion. So. So, yeah, he I mean, he didn't support it at all. And so that's, um, you know, he's not part of the Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers Association.
2: So here here you saw the Bundys who had, after Bundy Ranch thing, they had actually criticized their sheriff um, because he didn't come in and kick out the BLM. And they had implied that, you know, the sheriff is the ultimate law enforcement authority. But in this case, once the sheriff disagreed with them, they sort of discounted him and said, oh, no, not really they actually went to you know the, a neighboring county and tried to find Glenn Palmer, who was a CSPOA member, and try to get him on their right. side and, and yeah. get his help. So that that was interesting. Um, but but uh, an interesting follow up is that Richard Mack visited Harney County, I think uh, a week ago, two weeks ago, and was campaigning for a guy who's going to run against Ward, a constitutional sheriff who's running against Ward there in Harney County.
3: Wow.
0: Right. So these sheriffs get caught in the middle of their constituencies. So, you know, unlike maybe another politician, a, a, a state lawmaker or a county commissioner, you know, they're not really armed with posses. A sheriff is armed and has the ability to deputize a posse. And so there's a different power at work. And There's another really interesting thing, I think, about the sheriffs, which is that once they get voted in, the people who are likely to run against them in subsequent elections are their deputies. So in effect, it kind of becomes for a deputy, if you're trying to make a decision if you're going to run against your boss or not, you better really be able to win. Otherwise, you know, your life might not be too fun after that, I guess. So there's this sort of... um, momentum and power that a sheriff has and they can be in power for decades
3: right yeah yeah i know that in in southern utah there are some sheriffs that have been in power for i think decades um who are constitutional sheriffs
0: let me just ask jonathan a question which is what happens when a sheriff has this kind of power deputizes a posse and is acting in a way that part of the constituency isn't happy with what can be done what's the what power can stop them
2: Well, not much besides a recall election, actually. I mean, when it comes down to it, a a sheriff has, you know, they really do have a great deal of power because they are elected. They don't, they are not beholden. You know, a lot of people think, well, you know, the county commissioners are their boss, right? But that's not the case. The county commissioners are just a group of elected officials that are essentially on the same level as the sheriff. And while the county commissioners in most states do control the sheriff's budget, they're not allowed to just cut them off. They have to give them enough to 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 keep functioning as a, as a law enforcement agency. so there's very little that that anybody local can do or even statewide unless there's a serious malfeasance in which case the governor in in most states can remove the sheriff but even i i I know of cases where a sheriff was being indicted by the FBI um, in New Mexico, and the county commissioners tried to Say hey, you got to step down from office, and he refused to. He was going to jail, and he was still in office. So yeah, really, it comes down to it. It's a, it's a, it's got to be a recall election, or you know, if a regular election's coming up, they can vote him out. But again, it's really difficult to find candidates, especially in rural areas, that are willing to go up against a, a sheriff.
0: Yeah, so that I mean, it's really an interesting thing where you you have an individual with a lot of political power. And also a kind of armed military power in in a way. But not all sheriffs are constitutional sheriffs. There are elections at work and things that happen. so, Tate, you did a lot of research into Josephine County, Oregon, mm-hmm. where a group called the Oath Keepers, who are also another kind of constitutionalist group, they believe they're protecting this oath to the Constitution to protect America from its enemies, foreign and domestic, mm-hmm. which adds up to the federal government often. Mm -hmm. You did some research into the Oath Keepers and the way they were protecting minors in Josephine County, Oregon. Um, How did the dynamic with the sheriff change over time there?
3: Yeah, that, I mean, that's an interesting case. Um... So my story was about this dispute and this standoff in April 2015. But at that time, there was a fairly new sheriff in power. But before the standoff, there was a sheriff named Gil Gilbertson, um, and he is a constitutional sheriff, part of the CSPOA. He's also an oath keeper. And now he's also uh, one of the founding members of something called the Pacific Patriots Network, um, which sort of bridges constitutionalist militia groups Um Around the Pacific Northwest, so he had a pretty antagonistic relationship with the Bureau of Land Management and the Forest Service the Bureau of Land Management more so after um, he left office but um, but definitely with the Forest Service, he would always come down on the sides side of miners in the area um, and a lot of a lot of issues over roads keeping roads open you know he had threatened to breach gates forest service gates that were keeping people out of areas they wanted to be in so after him came into power was dave daniel who was the sheriff during this standoff at sugar pine mine last spring um and it's super interesting because he he like he didn't take a stance and the the miners and the supporters of the miners the oath keepers um thought that he was uh, a weak sheriff that he wasn't taking a stance he wasn't supporting them but i think that a lot of people in josephine county were really thankful that he didn't support them or create a situation like what happened in burns he he basically acted as a mediator like he was in he was in touch with the county commissioners the blm the miners um the oath keepers and he still has relationships with like the head of the oath keepers there they talk regularly and he is always it seems like he's constantly trying to like sort of talk people down so i don't know i i I wonder if there are other sheriffs in the West who who sort of take that that measured tone.
2: I did want to point that out and emphasize that, of course, as you said, not all sheriffs are constitutional sheriffs, and there are a lot of sheriffs in rural places that are working extremely closely with the BLM and the Forest Service, no matter what their political views, and uh, you know are reasonable and and have a have a really tough job, I think, especially these counties with lots of public land, because they got to they deal with all that, all, any kind of crime that's going on there. So um, I think, yeah, I just wanted to point that out.
3: Yeah. And I mean, their, jo- their, job is, their job is even harder now that there are people coming from other states and across the country, that they just, they have no idea who these people are or what their intentions are. And the sheriff is the person who's supposed to keep people safe. So yeah, it's a tough job.
0: Yeah, I think it's really interesting also to note that it, it is really, it's it's individual sheriffs. And, um, you know, I was recently on the phone with um, a sheriff who originally supported the ideas maybe behind the Oath Keepers or some of these other anti-federal groups, but converted after he did some training with the FBI and like learned what the FBI does and their role that they play. And, you know, these are... Sheriffs that have to manage this public land uh, there might be like big huge marijuana grow operations mm-hmm. on these public lands, and they can't handle that by themselves mm-hmm. um, and so they're yeah, they do get torn up between their um, constituents um, but that also really points to how important local elections are and that particular office so if you live in the rural west that's one of the most important things you can vote on is who your sheriff is, and knowing what they believe in and and what they stand for can really help you make make that decision because then, like we said, they do have a lot of power once they're elected into that position.
3: We should follow up with that, Sheriff. I mean, that sounds really interesting. The guy who converted.
2: It's John Lopey, the guy. I mean, he was hardcore back in 2011. Um, And, but he started to see what, Richard Mack was doing He's actually what happened I mean there was the FBI training and at the same time Mack had come into a neighboring county and was was trying to get rid of one of the incumbent sheriffs who Lope thought was great Mm -hmm. and uh, um, you know he was became disillusioned and he's changed he's changed his view you know he's still like second amendment guy but he wants to make sure that he doesn't he's not anti-Obama like he doesn't want you to think he's anti-Obama he's anti-Second Amendment and that he and he actually said that if there were federal gun rules he would stand up and enforce them of course he would you know so he's he's definitely uh reformed
0: yeah so you know I guess the big point here is that these things are super dynamic and they're always changing you always need to pay attention but if you don't like who your sheriff is you can always vote them out So that's it for our show today. Uh, You can read more about Sagebrush Sheriffs and the ongoing Sagebrush Rebellion at hcn.org. I want to give a special thanks to KVNF here in Peonia, Colorado, for helping us out. I've been speaking with our senior editor, Jonathan Thompson. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. And our online editor, Tay Wiles. Thanks, Tay. Thanks, Brian. Uh, And thank you all for listening. Uh, For West Obsessed, I'm Brian Calvert.